All right. All right. Hey, welcome. Welcome to your second breakout. This is the one where everyone has to agree we will fight the food coma together. You know what I'm talking about, that, that kind of sleepy uh, time. Hey, I'm glad that you're here. This is all about confidence in the Bible. So uh, if, if hopefully you're in the right one. If not, leave quickly, you know, and, and we'll get started. I want to talk to you about two different times briefly in my Christian life where I sincerely doubted my faith. They were very unsettling times for me, both of them. Um, once was during a time early on, maybe in my freshman year, where I struggled to believe that God really loved me because I didn't feel God's love for me. And I remember leaving a Saturday night worship set that was going on at this retreat, and I remember walking away from this retreat center. So just imagine in your mind's eye, I mean, here's uh, the, the brightness of the retreat center. I'm heading out into the woods in the darkness. And as the music is fading in the background of this super exciting worship set where I felt nothing, as the music was fading, my voice was being raised to God, yelling out loud, God, how do I know you love me? Because my lack of emotions was causing me to believe that must be how God views me. And I came to realize those struggling with a doubt in my faith that feelings are real, but feelings are often liars. And to feel things don't necessarily make something true. And to not feel certain things doesn't make it false. And it was in time that I would learn, man, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the ways that God has objectively worked in time and space, that is confidence enough to know that God loves me, whether I feel it or not. But there was another time that I began to doubt my faith, and that's what this equipping talk is all about. When I started wondering, what if the Bible that I believe in is not true? Or what if it's full of lies? And I don't really know when that doubt started. I don't know if it was like someone on my floor saying, oh, don't you know your Bible? You can't trust it. It's got lies in it. Or if it was something I read, I can't remember when it started. But it was very deeply unsettling to me. And maybe you've had doubts like that. Because all my life was built on the foundation of this book. And I kind of felt like if someone could pull it out from underneath me, or if it crumbled, I would come falling down with it. And so it was a very unnerving time in my life. It was probably around my sophomore year. And I was studying mechanical engineering. That's what my undergrad is in from Iowa State. And I think with that kind of like problem-solving mindset, I'm like, well, I've got to look into it. I've got to find out about it. And God had come through for me in the past with that doubt of not feeling emotion. So I felt confident I had to move towards it. And I just want to say, even before I start on the, the confidence in the Bible, move towards your doubt, not away from it. We all have doubts at times. And they're unnerving, and I wish you'd never have doubts, but at the same time, if you move towards them, you will find your strength, your faith strengthened, not weakened. Look, doubt does not mean denial. And it's shocking to me that we can be so open with each other and share our greatest sin failures, but at the same time, struggle to share with one another our greatest doubts. It's okay Talk about doubts. Everyone has them at times. And I've learned that if you move to them, God will meet you in the midst of those. God's calling us to faith, true, but it's not a blind leap of faith. It is careful, thoughtful processing the data and gaining in confidence in the faith that we do have. And many have sought to disprove Christianity over the time. I mean, some notable examples are like C.S. Lewis or Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell. 
atheists committed to bring down this crutch of society called Christianity. And when they put their minds to it and carefully reasoned and questioned the faith, they became some of the strongest converts for Christianity and proponents for the gospel. Even C.S. Lewis said years ago, I came into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming after he had examined the evidence. I came into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming, perhaps the most reluctant convert in all of England. But he moved towards doubt and God met him there. And so with that doubt of the Bible, I remember going home over a Christmas break and I went out to some farming friend that I had who had this little cabin, probably 100 years old on his property. And this little cabin had a bed and like a pot belly stove in it. It had almost nothing in it. And this little stove would keep me warm. I just kept feeding this fire because it was cold in the winter. And I went out there while everyone else was like doing Christmas break. I'm just like got my Bible and a couple books. And I'm going, God, meet me in my doubts. Show me the confidence that I need to have in your word. Meet me where I'm at. And he did. And I want to share with you some of what he was teaching me that I've actually been able to go back to as I was asked to give a talk on the confidence in the Bible. Look, stack every book that's ever been written next to you. It might go even up to the moon. Put the Bible next to it. The Bible is the most unique book ever written. It stands very different than all other books, religious and non-religious, of any ones ever written. Most books are written over the course of a few months or a few years. The Bible was 1,500 years in the making. It was written around over 40 generations. Most books have like a single author. The Bible has around 40 different authors and from various backgrounds. I mean, from peasant to doctor to fisherman to king. I mean, a lot of different backgrounds. You have a book that was written over that 1,500-year span on three different continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, in three different languages, Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic, and in the Greek language. And yet, amazingly... One unified theme emerges from Genesis to Revelation. Clearly the theme of the redemption of mankind, how God is bringing sinful man back in relationship with himself. How is it possible? How can a book written by so many different people over such a span of years and locations have one single theme as if it was written by the same author? The Bible says it's because it was written by the same author. 2 Peter 1, 20 says, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible is absolutely unique. I don't know anyone who would argue with that, but how can we be certain that it's telling the truth? It could be unique, but is it truthful? If you went to the place where you shop for groceries and you pulled out a $300 bill, that would be unique, but that's counterfeit money. You're going to get arrested. Okay, it's not truthful. We're asking, is the Bible not only unique, but is it truthful? Does it correspond to reality? And I want to zoom out and ask a broader question. How can we be certain of anything in history that we've not personally experienced? Ever thought about that? We've had our experiences, and you can go back to late 1800s, that's when motion pictures started, early 1800s, that's when they started snapping still shots, but what about before then? How do we know anything that purportedly happened in history actually did happen if we haven't personally witnessed it ourselves? Well, history is affirmed or denied by multiple tests of truth, and this applies to the Bible as well. And I want to look at three tests of truth today that will help you as you gain confidence in the Bible. Number one is manuscript evidence we'll talk about, two, archeological evidence, and three, 
prophetic fulfillment. Let me start with manuscript evidence. Bernard Rams speaks of the accuracy and the number of biblical manuscripts, and he says this, Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. With their, like these crazy methods of counting, they kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. Scribes, lawyers, Masoretes. Whoever counted the letters and syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle, Seneca, uh, Cicero or Seneca. Look, what you need to know is that when it comes to looking at ancient manuscripts, you're concerned about two things. Number one, the number of existing manuscripts that we have. And number two, the interval of time between when the original was written and the manuscript's copies were made, since no one has the original autographs of works. Okay, so let me give you a few examples just to dial you in. The works of Caesar. Let's just grab 100 BC as to when they took place. The earliest copies we have that look at those is 900 AD. So from 100 BC to 900 AD, there is a time span of a thousand years that elapsed between when they happened and when you actually have a recorded copy of it that help you understand it. A thousand year gap, and there are 10 copies in existence. Take the work of Plato, for example. Originally happening around 300 BC, actually probably a little bit earlier, the earliest copies aren't until 900 AD as well. That's a 1,200-year gap, and you only have seven copies for Plato. Now, before we get to the New Testament, which is super exciting, I'll talk about Homer's Iliad. This is the one that enjoys the most amount of manuscripts. This was originally happening in 900 BC, written down for us in 400 BC, only a 500-year gap, and you have 643 copies. So I don't know if you read like Homer's Iliad in high school. Like, I don't know if you had that. I think I had that, like AP English or something. Forgot every word of it. But like, there's a lot of manuscript evidence on that. 600 copies over. But for the New Testament, guys, it's in an absolute category of its own. There is no work in antiquity like it. The New Testament, in contrast to those things, that is the Gospels, not just one, but four Gospels, all of Paul's letters, like the New Testament that you have in your hands, the events happening and being first penned around 40 to 100 AD, right? The earliest copies you have are 125 AD. Within 25 years of when these things were documented, 25-year gap, it's almost nothing, and... How many manuscript copies do we have? Get this. In the Greek language alone, 5,300 Greek manuscript copies, 10,000 in Latin Vulgate, and various other um, existing copies. You add 9,300 to that, and you get around 24,000 manuscript copies that came within 25 years of when that time frame ended. It's absolutely amazing. And here's what's crazy about the New Testament, and this is different than everything else. If something were wrongly recorded, it's like, no, Jesus didn't say that, but we'll write it down anyways. No, that event didn't happen, but we'll write it down anyways. If what they had recorded in the New Testament was false, you could falsify every claim by doing what? Asking the eyewitnesses. They're all still alive. Many of them hadn't died. 
the writing, the recorded copies we have are so close to the actual events that there were eyewitnesses everywhere to validate or falsify the claims. That's why, like, no known secular scholars that I'm even aware of disagree with the resurrection. It's like, just talk to it. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people alive, and all the lives were changing. So it's amazing to me the amount of eyewitness testimony that strengthens the Bible. In fact, the Bible speaks reportedly with eyewitness language. You'll see it all over the scriptures now that I mention it probably. But take the Dr. Luke. Luke, a doctor, wrote his gospel account. And listen to how Luke methodically recorded it. This is how he opens up Luke chapter 1. Luke writes, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, and he writes like a doctor, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed." And then Luke got on a boat, traveled with the Apostle Paul, and wrote Luke, Volume 2, which is the book of Acts. Like, the doctor meticulously recorded eyewitness testimony, and the Bible talks like that all the time. And it pushes it back going, hey, you people even questioning the Bible, you're eyewitnesses also. It's so unique in that respect. You could falsify it just by asking people if it were untrue. It'd be like this. Imagine if I said to you, hey, In 2007, University of Florida was awesome at football. In fact, we had a guy named Tim Tebow who won the Heisman that year. Now, those of you who know football are going, you know what? He's he's telling the truth. Florida might not be good right now at football, but they were back then. That's true. But what if I also went on to say, and the way he celebrated that last touchdown was epic. He charged into the end zone on his last touchdown drive of his 2007 Heisman season, and instead of celebrating, he just put the ball down, single-handedly ripped the goalpost out of the ground, and then flew out of Ben Hill Griffin Stadium with it on his back all the way to Orlando to Walt Disney World, not joking, and stuck it in the top of Space Mountain. Some of you actually would believe me because Tim Tebow is such a legend, but most of you shouldn't. No, it's not true. I know it sounds true. No, Tim Tebow, okay, here's how you would know it's not true. Um, There was like 90,000 people there. Just ask them. They would all say, dude, he won the Heisman, all the rest of that stuff's garbage. And it would autocorrect, and I could never convince the world from here on out that he flew like Superman and stuck a goalpost in Space Mountain. What I'm saying is, Jesus rose from the dead. He started appearing to hundreds of people. All the events, the eyewitnesses were there. They started recording it. We have thousands of copies. It validates this as a trustworthy historical document, all within the lifetime. Before I conclude this section on manuscript evidence, though, and move on to archaeological stuff, let let me just ask this. Um, Have you ever had someone come up to you and go, well, how can you trust in a Bible that's so full of errors? You know, that's something that people will push back at you with. And I want to say, don't let anyone just like get away with that blanket statement and put you on the defense. Like somehow lovingly, maybe try and hand them your Bible and just go, oh man, I'm so sorry to hear that. Can you just show me the top errors that concern you the most? Most people would be like, oh, that's just what people say. Is it true? I mean, is the Bible true? Like they don't normally know what to say. They've just been quoting that because they've heard that. And I... I want to help you to realize that, no, it's trustworthy. But I also want to um, 
be fully transparent about some of what it took to copy the Bible into the language that we have it in. Okay. We believe that the original autographs were the inerrant word of God. But does that mean that copyists never make a scribal error? No, it does not. What we're asking is, can we trust the copies of the Bible that have come to us that God has preserved, and can any errors be understood, like how we got uh, a spelling error or something like that? That I think we can. Jake Hearing, uh, one of the teaching pastors of Candeo Church, he's actually doing a breakout session as well, but he wrote this. It's important to remember that the Bible wasn't written in English, but was written in Hebrew, Greek, and a small amount of Aramaic. As a result, for the Bible to be available in any other language, it has to be translated into those languages. Which, if you've ever learned another language, right? I had Spanish in high school. Like, if you've ever tried to learn another language, you know that the task of translation is not just an easy word-to-word copy. Not only that, but before the invention of the printing press, God bless Gutenberg, you know, in the 1400s, if you wanted a written work, like, published, in order to publish it and distribute it, you had to have people write it, scribes. And that was true not just, like, for the Bible. That was, like, all ancient documents. They had to be handwritten. So as you can imagine, the best scribes would make mistakes from time to time. And there isn't anything sinister or evil about that. People can record a word wrong or a spelling wrong. In fact, most of these mistakes were very small. Others a bit larger, and those are documented in your Bible. But because of this reality came a, um, because of this reality that comes with scribal transmission, this entire branch of study called textual criticism emerged, which is fantastic. Textual criticism basically compares manuscript copies to manuscript copies to go, what's original? Determines which one was written when, which ones are earliest, compares them. Now, the accuracy, stay with me, the accuracy of textual criticism actually increases the more manuscripts you have to compare to one another, which the Bible has tons. The ability to spot variants and discern original content goes up. And a vast majority, like 99% of scribal discrepancies in the New Testament consists of things like spelling errors. Okay, like so if someone spelled cat wrong, they went K-A-T, and then they kept copying that. I was like, we got 100 manuscripts over here with K-A-T. It's like, I think we see where that came from. You know, how a spelling error might continue to be propagated. A spelling or or the use of a definite article, John, a name like John or the John. It's like, yeah, I think we're talking about John. Um, Or repeated lines or sentences. So when you hear that the Bible is chock full of errors, you can't trust it. That's a misinformed statement. And it mostly refers to scribal errors that can be easily spotted when you can cross-reference them. Now, there's a small number of textual questions like, don't have that resolved. But here's the cool thing about that. Even the small number of those In your Bible, they're all footnoted. Have you seen that? In brackets. It might say something like, not in the earliest manuscript or something like that. So no one's trying to hide anything from you. That's what they would be doing if they were trying to like be sneaky about it. They're going, those are the ones that we're still working on. You know, so, and what's cool about that, and then Michael Kruger, respected New Testament canon scholar, stated this, no unresolved textual variant places a significant doctrine in jeopardy. In other words, there's no existing textual variant, none between any manuscripts that affects a central doctrine of Christianity if it goes one way or another. So it's not like you're reading in the Bible and then there's brackets around the word resurrection. Did that happen? No, it's like uh, this, this verse or that verse still are comparing manuscripts. So what's cool is that copious errors are extremely minimal. Almost every one of them is immediately obvious. Any existing textual questions are footnoted in your Bible so you can follow it. And no textual question threatens any significant doctrine.
So to be said, oh, your Bible's full of errors, it's like, no, it's not. It's a confident, trustworthy resource that shows the history. Kenyon, Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, former director and principal librarian of the British Museum, and second to none in authority for issuing statements about manuscripts, writes this. The interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest existing evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to as substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. I'm telling you, as I studied these things as a young college student, I gained in confidence that my Bible could be trusted. In fact, I know of no other work in antiquity like it. As we move from manuscript evidence to archaeological evidence, this is when we start looking around the world that the Bible comes to us in and going, as we dig, as we look around, as we dig deeper, does the account of the Bible line up with what we're finding? And I want to tell you with a resounding, yes, it does. It's amazing to me. The Bible's the best historical document I know. Cities that are described are cities that they dig out and find. Customs that are weird and not understood in the world, you read the Bible, and then you read stuff that they dig up and go, that makes sense. It does show itself in history. I don't know if many of you have been able to go to like Jerusalem or Greece or study some of the biblical area. I had a chance to go to Greece some years ago because something powerful happens in your faith and your confidence in the Bible. When you start walking around the very land it comes to us in and seeing how it all lines up. I have eaten lunch in Neapolis, the place where the Apostle Paul's boat first hit the shore of Europe when the gospel came to Europe. I'm like, he was here, I'm here right now. I then went over that little range, 17 miles away or whatever, to Philippi, where I stood on the bank of the river, where, like with my Bible open, I'm like, oh, this is where the Apostle Paul spoke to Lydia. And her and her family became the first converts in all of Europe. This is where the gospel started in Europe. I'm standing at the river where she first heard the gospel, and then her and her family were baptized right here. And then with my Bible open, I go over here. This is where Paul was accused for sharing with Lydia, where then he was beaten, thrown in a prison. I'm walking around on the same Roman roads that the apostle Paul walked on in those days. Then head on down the road to Berea, to Corinth, to Thessalonica, to Athens. I've stood on Mars Hill. The Areopagus that overlooks Athens, overlooks the Parthenon, where the Apostle Paul gave his famous Acts 17 address confronting intellectuals who did not know Jesus, stood there. And as you walk around with the Bible open, seeing it all perfectly line up, I'm telling you, your confidence in the Bible, your faith goes from mere intellect to this confidence. It's like it goes from just faith to sight. But I want to share with you one detail about archaeological evidence that I find fascinating. You can look at many more. I had to be just painfully selective with uh, scrapping a lot of material to make this work in the amount of time I had. Let me tell you about one archaeological find that I think is cool. There's this dude, Muhammad Eddib is his name, in 1946-47, in that fall winter, this 15-year-old Bedouin shepherd boy, Muhammad, has 50 sheep that he's taken charge of. And he goes up to a cave in this hillside and he throws a rock into this one. My guess is he's got a wandering sheep and he's trying to chase it out. 
he throws a rock into this cave. And instead of hearing, like, I don't know if he ever hit the sheep, what he did hear was, that ain't a sheep. Sheep don't break. Like, he ends up going into this cave, finds that he's broken some clay pot of some kind, grabs this leather manuscript with Hebrew on it, takes it back home, gives it to his dad. His dad finds it interesting, but sits on it for two years. Two years later, the dad sells it to a merchant. The merchant then sells it to an American university. And excited by the value of that scroll, further exploration between the years of 1949 to 1956 uncovered jars in 11 more caves with scrolls that contained the entire Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic, except for the book of Esther. Some of the writings were inscriptions on copper plates. The caves also, get this, yielded up ancient historical records from the time of Isaiah to the time of Christ. Look, I don't know if this dude ever found a sheep, but what he found was the greatest archaeological discovery in biblical history. What he found came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. He uncovered scrolls that had been hidden for 20 centuries that had enough material, 40,000 inscribed fragments from which 500 books have been reconstructed, both biblical and non-biblical. Muhammad Adib uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what was interesting is while the New Testament has tons of manuscripts copies, the way they did and copied the Old Testament, it has less copies. So all of a sudden they grab like this writing of Isaiah and they're like, wow, the the newest Isaiah we had was in AD 900. Now we just found something over a thousand years earlier in this cave. I wonder how they line up. I wonder how the now newest one compares to the one that we had. And seeing how they line up will give us confidence or cause us to lose confidence in how good they were at transmitting copies as they made them over the years. You understand that? So they compared the two next to each other. And what they found was astounding. Look, just from Isaiah 53 alone, a powerful chapter, prophetic about the coming of Christ. Of the 166 words written in Isaiah 53 alone, there were only 17 letters in question. Ten of the letters were simply a matter of spelling, which doesn't affect the sense. Four more letters were minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions, do not, don't. I see what you did there. You know, it's like, but get this. The remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meaning significantly. So in one chapter of 166 words written a thousand years later, comparing two manuscripts together, and we're talking about three words, actually only three letters. It was amazing correspondence giving us confidence that God who wanted to get something accurate that you can trust into your hands, pulled it off through fallible people. Guys, the Bible is trustworthy. And I thank God for these like scribes all those years ago who one letter at a time, one letter at a time, counting them, syllables, all that kind of stuff, day after day, year after year for a lifetime, gave themselves to bring us the Bible that we have. Look, we've looked briefly at manuscript evidence 
talking about number of copies and duration of time between events and the, and the manuscripts. We looked at briefly at archaeological stuff, kind of keying in on Dead Sea Scrolls. Let me end with talking about prophetic fulfillment. I think this is absolutely amazing. Guys, simply put, God's batting a thousand when it comes to whatever he says is going to happen, like happens. Like, that's my short answer. But let me just give you like a little illustration of it as it relates to the coming of Christ. I mean, Josh McDowell said it this way. With even greater detail, God wrote an address in history to single out his son, the Messiah, the savior of mankind from anyone who's ever lived in history, past, present, or future. The specifics of this address can be found in the Old Testament, which contains more than 300 references to his coming. And these prophecies were made 400 years before he came. So so let me just stop and say this. 400 years before Christ is coming, he's writing hundreds of things about this is who the Messiah is going to be. It's like God wanted no one to miss the reality that this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. This is the one you need to redeem the world. Okay, here's a a few of them. You can't write all these down. I'll put my notes somehow up up to this conference talk. It was spoken to Adam and Eve long before Jesus ever came in Genesis 3 that the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, that is, destroy the work of the devil, he would be born. He would come, and this is Jesus who did this in his death, burial, and resurrection. That was predicted a long time ago in Genesis 3. Of Noah's sons, Hemsham and Japheth, it was Shem predicted in Genesis 9 through whom the lineage of the Messiah would come. That was predicted long before. Of Abraham's two sons, God chose the second son, Isaac, not Ishmael, as the scripture predicted would happen in Genesis 17. Of Isaac's two sons, God chose the second son, um, or of Isaac's two sons, he chose Jacob, not Esau, as the Bible predicted in Genesis 35 would happen. Of Jacob's 12 sons, God chose Judah, further selected the line of Jesse. Isaiah 11 predicted that. Of Jesse's eight sons, David was chosen to bring God's king. Jeremiah 23 talks about that. Get this, this one's fun. Isaiah 7 predicted that, oh, and then you'll know Jesus is coming because he'll be born of a virgin. Like there's zero other virgins that have gotten pregnant in the history of humanity. It's like, you talk about an unplanned pregnancy. Like one woman is like, mom, dad, I promise, I didn't do anything. Like yeah. unplanned pregnancy was planned by God. God's like, you'll know, this is not gonna be hard. I'm gonna bring my Messiah through a virgin because she cannot have the lineage of man who carries a sin nature through him. Now Jesus had to come and be perfect and sinless. He'll come through a virgin. That was predicted for us in Isaiah 7. Micah 5 predicts the exact location where he would be born. A no-name town called Bethlehem. Less than 1,000 people there. It's like, believe me, there's someone really important that's going to be born in your town. His name's Jesus. Um, the Messiah is going to be born there. The exact day, get this. This one's hard to follow. There is an event in history that I don't have time to get into the details. You can look at an apologetic stuff. There, there is a day that set in progress a 483-year clock. At the end of 483 years to the day, God said, my Messiah will come into Jerusalem. I'm telling you, the Jew who did his math, who took the Bible seriously, could have packed a lunch and said, I have been waiting for this day, old guy, 483 years. I am sitting here. And I know that at some point on this day, God prophesied perfectly, the Messiah will come to town. And then comes a triumphal entry where Jesus enters Jerusalem before his crucifixion. 
God is trying to say in no uncertain terms, I'm going to make this easy for everyone. You cannot miss the one I'm sending to save humanity. The exact day the Messiah came, the way he would be handled, I, Psalm 22, there's another passage also that predicts that the Messiah's hands and feet will be pierced. Guys, crucifixion was predicted as his method of death 800 years before the Romans even used crucifixion. The scripture predicted that the Jewish people would largely reject him, the Gentiles would accept him. The Jewish scriptures predicted that someone would come ahead of him. An Elijah-like figure, it would be John the Baptist, spoken of both in the book Malachi and in Isaiah chapter 40, that an Elijah-like figure would come and prepare his way, saying, there he is. This is what John the Baptist did, going, he's right there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was promised hundreds of years before it happened that Jesus would be betrayed, that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend, that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend for three, 30 pieces of silver, that that silver would be thrown into the temple, that then that silver would be used to buy a potter's field. And that's exactly what happened when Judas, overwhelmed by the guilt of betraying Jesus Christ, went and hung himself from a tree in a field that had been used to purchase with that 30 pieces of silver. Because what I'm saying is this. The precise lineage, place, time, manner of birth, people's reactions, betrayal, manner of death, these are just a fraction of the hundreds of details that make up the exact address to Jesus Christ's coming. It's like God was saying, I don't want anyone to miss this. I will make it so obvious. How possible is it that Jesus accidentally fulfilled all those prophecies? Here's the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling just eight of them, because at least we can have an illustration that makes some sense in our brains. If Jesus accidentally fulfilled eight of those prophecies, it would be like you took silver dollars and you spread them all over the state of Texas. That's no small state. You try and drive across it, it like takes half your lifetime. It's huge, almost 300,000 square miles. So spread silver dollars across the whole state, two feet deep. Then just mark one of them, make a little mark on one of them. Throw it in there. Bing. Then stir them all up. After a while, send a blind dude out there. Say, dude, take your time. It doesn't matter weeks, months, years. Just roam around for a long time. And when you're ready, plunge your hand into your silver dollar ocean and pull up one of them. The chance that you're going to pull up the exact one is one in 10 to the 17th power. The same likelihood that Jesus accidentally fulfilled just eight of the prophecies. If Jesus fulfilled 48 of the prophecies, the chances of him accidentally, like the Bible just uh, got it wrong. It was just accidental. That's not one in 10 to the 17th. That's one in 10 to the 157th power. Like, I don't know how many lotteries you're winning in a row to pull that one off. Like, what? 157 zeros. Like, I don't even have an illustration. It, our minds would be like, nothing makes sense to try and illustrate that likelihood. But get this. With Jesus, there aren't eight prophecies about his exact coming, or 48. There are 60 major prophecies with 270 ramifications referring to the Christ coming, when he did, how he did, how he would be responded to. What I'm saying is this. There's nothing like this. There's nothing like this in all of antiquity, religious or otherwise. It's batting a thousand. It is saying with perfection, this is exactly the one you need to trust. Jesus Christ for your salvation. Whether you look at manuscript evidence, 
whether you look at archaeological evidence, whether you look at prophetic fulfillment, the Bible is in a class on its own. Stack all the books to the moon and put the Bible next to it. This one is unique and trustworthy like no other document we have. H.L. Hastings, the French, said, when the French monarch proposed the persecution of Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of the infidels had been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If the book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die, and the book still lives. The Bible is unique, and it's trustworthy. And I'm telling you, I want to end more on a pastoral note for a moment. Try and rewind the clock in your brain when you look at me and see a 20-year-old sophomore or whatever heading home over Christmas break. And instead of shooting to my house and gifts and family, and whatever, I just went out to this little farm and I'm in this little 100-year-old cabin with a potbelly stove and I got my Bible and some books and I was kind of nervous about my faith because I had real doubts. But God had come through for me before on real doubts where I didn't feel his love. So I was leaning in like, God, I need you to come through again. And I'm trying to stay warm with my wood and I've got my books spread out. And I'm telling you, guys, God met with me. And he will meet with you in your doubts. Don't run away from doubts. It's part of it. We weren't there to see all the things. We need to have confident faith. Move towards your doubts. Doubt does not mean denial. And I'm telling you, as you do, you will find that the God who began a good work in you, he'll carry it on to completion. And he will carry you in his arms through shadows and valleys of doubts and even against the hardest criticisms of hardened atheists who want to try and destroy your faith, he will show you, yes, you can have confidence in his word, both to grow your own faith and to be the hope that the world so desperately needs. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. Father, um, we come to you, God, and in this moment, I pray for the men and the women in front of me. Lord, the world is trying to assault their faith um, the enemy, Satan himself, is still whispering what he did all the way back in the garden into Eve's ear. Did God really say, did God really say that? His tactics haven't changed. His subject matter has. Have you considered evolution? Have you considered this? Have you considered gender dysphoria? Have you considered, that? have you considered, did God really say, did God really say, did God really say, God, I pray that you would show up for us, that you would give us rock-solid confidence in the Bible. Its truthfulness will not be hard to find. Standing on it will take courage that can only come from you. So God, I pray for these men and women that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would courageously move towards their doubts. They would open up and be as open and transparent about their doubts as they are their sin failures, and that we would find you together. You'd strengthen our faith, and you'd give us the message that the world so confidently needs to hear from us, that Jesus Christ has come. He can be trustworthy. He has been changing lives for 2,000 years, and he could change your life too. Give us courage to herald that message until you return or we go be with you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. 
Amen. Well, thank you for coming. I will put my notes uh, online and uh, yeah, hopefully that was helpful.